Our scripture today comes from Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and to those who resist, they will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The word of the Lord. So this summer we are doing a sermon series called Public Faith, uh, following the work that was done um, in the fall of 2013 by Tim Keller at Redeemer in New York City. And so last week we looked at the necessity of going public with our faith because the fact of the matter is that everyone, no matter who you are, if you believe in God or don't believe in anything, all of us, as, as a matter of kind of our foundational principles, operate from a place of faith. From foundational, unprovable beliefs about the world and human life, where we come from, where we're going, what, what does it all mean, what is it all for? And so my encouragement to those who do claim to be followers of Jesus is to get on with it and seek together to discern how we can do public faith well in a way that brings glory to God and good to our fellow human beings. And as I was preparing that message last week, a, a curious thing happened. I was looking at Twitter, my vice, okay, and I saw that Romans 13 was trending. I mean, Romans 13, uh-oh, if Romans 13 is trending, probably something bad is happening in the world. And, and I, saw, I saw a link to a video clip of the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, and, and so it was an excerpt from a speech that he gave in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then I looked at the speech for the text of the speech, and I found it on the Department of Justice website. Um, and, and the title that the speech was given on the, the DOJ website was, Attorney General Sessions Addresses Recent Criticisms of Zero Tolerance by Church Leaders. And so these weren't offhand remarks in which church leaders happen to be addressed. It seems that the main point of the Attorney General making these remarks was to address criticisms from church leaders of the Department of Justice's new Zero Tolerance policy to prosecute everyone who crossed the border illegally, including those seeking asylum, which meant separating families while the parents' cases were being adjudicated. And so as far as I can tell, because this is addressing church leaders, that's a very broad term. Who are these church leaders that were being uh, addressed? And so uh, in kind of doing some research on this, I think the church leaders that Mr. Sessions was addressing especially included um, a group uh, called the Evangelical Immigration Table. So a group of advocates who are a sort of sub group within the National Association of Evangelicals who issued a letter to the president on June 1st um, uh, criticizing this policy. And so uh, 
A couple weeks before this speech, they said, as evangelical leaders representing tens of thousands of local churches, campus communities, and ministries, we are concerned that the new zero-tolerance policy at the U.S.-Mexico border, recently announced by Attorney General Sessions and being implemented by the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, has had the effect of separating vulnerable children from their parents. As head of the executive branch of the federal government, we are writing to ask you to resolve this situation of families being separated that you have rightly described as horrible. As evangelical Christians guided by the Bible, one of our core convictions is that God has established the family as the fundamental building block of society. The state should separate families only in the rarest of instances. While illegal entry into the United States can be a misdemeanor criminal violation, past administrations have exercised discretion in determining when to charge individuals with this offense, taking into account the well-being of children who may also be involved. A zero-tolerance policy removes that discretion with the effect of removing even small children from their parents. The traumatic effects of this separation on these young children, which could be devastating and long-lasting, are of utmost concern. The letter continues on for a couple more. Paragraphs. But this was just one of the voices of criticism from across the Christian spectrum that objected to this policy on biblical and moral grounds. But it was especially potent, I think, this particular example, given that it comes from a constituency that has been largely supportive of this administration. So in response to these mounting chorus of criticisms, the attorney general did some public theologizing of his own in the aforementioned speech. And so here, here, here's what he said. He said, Let me take an aside to discuss concerns raised by our church friends about separating families. Many of the criticisms raised in recent days are not fair or logical, and some are contrary to law. First, illegal entry into the United States is a crime, as it should be. Persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. I would cite to you, and this is really the meat of the matter that I'm going to get into today. I would cite to you the Apostle Paul. And his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. And then if you read the prepared remarks but watch the clip, uh, the attorney general um, goes off his prepared remarks and makes a further biblical reference to the Old Testament story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, who was uh, an official in the government of the Persian king Artaxerxes, was granted permission to return to Jerusalem. And one of the first things that he did when he came back to Jerusalem was to begin to rebuild the city walls. And so Sessions' point was, how can Christians, how can these church leaders be saying that building walls is a bad thing when Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem? And one of the first things he did was to build walls. So here we have it. Faith in public. The Bible in the wild. In Mr. Sessions' remark, they sparked an outcry, to put it mildly, and so in response to his citations of Romans 13, we we had Ali Velshi on MSNBC taking out the the Bible and, and start reading verses that had to do with God's heart for the stranger and children. We had Hillary Clinton tweeting out Jesus' words from the King James Version, Suffer not, The little children come unto me. And so the Bible was in the news and in the public conversation. And so as a pastor, I thank God for this teachable moment. I thought if I'm doing a sermon series on public faith and faith is in the public and I don't talk about this example of public faith, what am I doing? And I found, uh, I have to say that I found both the Attorney General's use of Scripture and, and in many instances, his opponents' responses using Scripture to be a less than helpful way of engaging in public theology. Because when doing faith in public, the last thing Christians should be doing is playing Bible darts. 
as my seminary professor said, hurling proof texts back and forth because this contributes nothing to the public discourse, nor is it reflective of a deeply formed Christian conscience, character, or conviction. The saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that a text without context is pretext. A text without context is pretext. And so I'm not going to you know, pretend and sort of say I'm suspending judgment and uh, let's measure it out. And I'm not actually going to address the specifics uh, of this policy, just the specifics of the use of Romans 13 in its defense. And I won't feign indifference or claim I have an open mind from the start. I, I respect you as my congregation too much to do that. I, it just in response to the policy, I agree with Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, conservative New York Times columnist Ross Delta, who both have argued quite persuasively that the policy was wicked in its intent and its execution. But does the Bible support this wickedness? Was Sessions wrong to invoke the Apostle Paul? And one of the things that you heard in this conversation as Romans 13 came up was that this specific passage has been used throughout history to justify all kind of wickedness. And so what do we do with that? And I want to answer first the broader question, though, of how do we do public theology well? How would one know if one had done a good job even? Because if, if the proper way to do this isn't proof texting, isn't throwing Bible darts, isn't finding you know, specific passages uh, to support our preferred policy, what's the right way to do it? And so I want to lift up to you first, very briefly, it, it, it has to be brief, um, but a, a summary of, of one of the most important works of biblical theology from the end of the 20th century uh, is called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. And it was written by a guy named Richard Hayes, who is now a retired uh, professor, but he was then the professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. And this is really one of the most important theological texts of the end of the 20th century, probably of the last 25 years. It's in my top 10 for sure. And he says, how do we do Christian ethics? Right? We have this New Testament. As Christians, we believe that this is God's self-revelation to us, and, and it's a, a perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. So how do we take this text and think through how then we should live? And so he proposes this threefold task for doing Christian ethics, which I think is very helpful and germane to our conversation this morning. And so he says there's, there's three tasks we can do. There's the descriptive task, the synthetic task, and the, the application task. And so the first task is descriptive, and this means reading relevant texts carefully, using our best exegetical and interpretive tools to understand what a specific biblical text means in its context. And so we can't read Romans 13 without understanding its place in the overall sweep and scope of Paul's argument in Romans. And without understanding the historical context of the Christian church that Paul was addressing in Rome. And in order to do that, we've got to understand something about the history of the Roman Empire and the position of Christian communities within that empire. And we've got to understand how Paul uses language in one place, how that relates to how he uses it in another In other words, the descriptive task is really about a close and deep reading of texts. So that's the first task, is is descriptive. And the second task is synthetic. It means 
bringing together the whole, the synthetic, think of a synthesis, of a drawing together. And that means placing specific biblical passages in conversation with other relevant passages that address the same topics or themes. And asking, how do these different diverse voices fit together? And so in the case of Romans 13, that would mean bringing this passage into conversation with other passages that talk about the relationship of the people of God to the government. We recently read a very similar one in 1 Peter 3, so we'd have to talk about that. How are they similar? How are they different? We'd have to look at, at, at the book of Acts and passages like Acts 5 where, where Peter has been preaching the gospel and then the religious council says, okay, we'll leave you alone if you, you can't talk about it anymore. You're forbidden. And he says, we must obey God rather than human beings. And, and we'll have to bring it in conversation with passages like the book of Daniel, where we've got Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel himself being imprisoned and, and given death sentences for disobeying the orders of the king. And passages like Revelation 13, where the Roman Empire itself is pictured as a blasphemous beast to be destroyed. So Hayes' argument is that when we take one task, when we finish the text, when we finish the descriptive task, then we've, we've got to bring it together in, in conversation and in harmony with, with, with the full breadth of God's revelation in Scripture. And he says that, that we're trying to fit these puzzle pieces together. It, it helps to have a picture of what the puzzle should look like. If you've ever done a, a, a puzzle, you know, a thousand-piece puzzle, um, if you don't have a picture of what the puzzle is, it's a lot more difficult to put the pieces together. And so Hayes says he offers up three central figures that he sees the, the Scripture putting together. He says that, that God is always trying to form a community of countercultural disciples, that, that the central image in the New Testament is the cross of Jesus, sacrifice and suffering as the way of faithfulness. And lastly, there's this image of the new creation of this new future that God has created through the resurrection of Jesus. And, and it's this new way of living and being in the world that has already arrived but is not yet and never will be attainable this side of glory. So he says we fit these pieces together and, and together they form this image of a community cross and new creation. And then the last task is application, right? You, you read it, you bring it into conversation, and then the question is, well, how are you going to live it out how then shall we live in light of what Scripture teaches us? How do we bridge the gap between the world of the text and our world? What does subjecting ourselves to the governing authorities look like in a constitutional democracy versus an empire ruled by Caesars who claim not to just be human beings, but at this time there was a growing cult of the emperor, and so they were viewed as gods walking the earth. And so how to answer these questions, it requires the Holy Spirit. It requires imagination. It requires sustained practices of worship, prayer, fellowship, Bible study, all within the context of a church that helps us to discern, reflect, learn, and see if our efforts are producing the fruit of the Spirit. And this isn't easy, but this is the task to which we have been called as followers of Jesus Christ. And the greatest danger of all is this, and Hayes captures it so wonderfully at the end of what is his magnum opus. He says, there is always the danger that in our complex hermeneutical deliberations about New Testament ethics, we might construct an elaborate system of rationalizations that simply justify the way we already live our lives. 
I'm going to say that again. There is always the danger that in our complex hermeneutical deliberations about the New Testament ethics, we might construct an elaborate system of rationalizations that simply justify the way we already live our lives. Right? Scripture, we just find a way to get it to cosign whatever we already want to think and what we want to do. And that's not just a danger for the Attorney General of the United States. That is a danger for each and every one of us. All of us who would dare to theologize in public. But the task of our theology, public and otherwise, is to do what Paul says just a chapter before this passage at the beginning of Romans 12. The point of all of this is, is, is to not be conformed to this age, but transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what the will of God is. What is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the task of Christian ethics, and that's the target at which all of our efforts of public faith must aim. Don't be conformed, be transformed, and seek to discern what is the will of God, good, pleasing, and perfect will. So with all of that said as prologue, now we can turn to Romans 13 itself. But before I say what I want to say, I want to say what someone else had to say, because it is so good. So this comes from uh, 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 my favorite, one of my favorite um, and Matt Anderson's favorite. That's why we get along so well. Uh, uh, N.T. Wright, he was a, he's a British New Testament scholar, and, and he was a bishop, actually, in the Church of England. And so he wrote this marvelous commentary on Romans in 2002. Um, uh, really one of the, the uh, most important commentaries uh, on this book in quite a long time. And so he, on this passage, he, he gives this long quote kind of introducing it because it's had a very uh, controversial history in, in the last probably... 25 or 30 years. And so Wright says this, and it's so wonderful. He says, Theological fashions change, and pressure points move from one exegetical location to another. And so a previous generation found Romans 9 intolerable, first reading into that chapter a doctrine of absolute predestination to salvation or damnation, and then angrily rejecting it. Others have taken a similar view of Romans 1, 18 to 32, hating the very idea of wrath as a theologically barbarous concept. And now, after a century in which totalitarian governments have devastated continents, decimated nations, and dehumanized millions of their subjects, it is scarcely surprising that the critical searchlight has swung round and come to rest on the little paragraph now before us. As though by some scapegoating process, these seven verses have been struck out of the canon, vilified, and blamed for untold miseries. They have enabled whole generations of critics to combine their socio-political instincts and prejudices with their status as professional exegetes and to leapfrog over Paul onto what looks like the high moral ground. This is always a deeply satisfying pastime. But when the sound and fury have died away, we are left wondering what all the fuss was about. Yes, many wicked and powerful governments have appealed to Romans 13 to justify their every move. Have people not done that with the words of Jesus himself? If enemies sow weeds in a field of wheat, is the wheat farmer to be blamed? There are many parts of the Bible that can be and have been twisted to serve violent and self-serving ends. If we cut them all out, there might be little left. Exegesis and the, to, the determination to live at least with its results, and perhaps even by them, is always a risk. Part of the risk of an incarnational religion or faith. Romans 13 is no exception. This paragraph, I shall suggest, needs neither needs nor deserves opprobrium. 
It is not a full-blown theology of church and state. Indeed, as is often pointed out, our post-enlightenment notion of state would have been foreign to Paul. One can hardly blame a writer if, in the course of a letter about something else, a small aside does not contain the full sophisticated and nuanced treatment that subsequent generations might have liked. Paul's point here is essentially quite simple. It fits into the line of thought of Romans 12 to 13 as a whole. It need not be wished away in an effort to undercut legitimating arguments for totalitarianism. And indeed, it needs to be present for the balance of the previous chapter and paragraph to be maintained. And so what Wright is referring to here when he's talking about the previous chapter and the overall flow of the argument of Romans 12 and 13 is that Paul, at the end of chapter 12, is talking about ethical instruction for individual Christians. And at the end of Romans 12, he expressly and he explicitly forbades the taking of private vengeance. He says, don't return evil for evil and, and, and don't perpetrate vengeance on other people because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is in God's hands, so you cannot take private vengeance. And so if that's the case, then the question is, you know, well, are Christians supposed to sort of just allow themselves and their families and their churches to be destroyed through violence and persecution? Oh. Shouldn't they, you know, if wronged, get even in order to defend themselves and to deter such actions from occurring in the future? And for Paul, that's where the governing authorities come in. They have been instituted by God to defend the good and punish the wicked. And so our entire system of justice is predicated on the circumspection of private vengeance. That's why all crimes are are prosecuted by the government on behalf of the government. That's why it was the people versus O.J. Simpson. And not the Browns or the Goldmans versus O.J. Simpson. Separating personal vengeance and public justice is one of the key ingredients to civilization. This is what allows the cycles of violence and retribution to stop. And so Paul's most basic point is that God has appointed governing authorities for the primary purpose of keeping the peace and administering justice to protect the weak and vulnerable from the abuse of powerful people. And when we read through Acts and, and, and Paul's missionary journeys where he's often the, his life is often being threatened, we see that time and time and again, it's actually the Roman authorities who step in and offer him protection from, you know, quote-unquote mob justice, from getting stoned or killed or, or, or lynched. And so government's purpose is to punish evil and promote the public good. That the system doesn't always work that way is a criticism of bad government and not of government in and of itself. And so Paul's first and most basic point is this. The desire for good government is a godly impulse. And that point seems so basic as to be uncontroversial. So let everyone be subject to the governing authorities simply means that society works best when governments govern well and governments govern well when they punish wrongdoing and promote rightdoing. The alternative is chaos. And in the absence of government, human communities regress to the law of the jungle and the whims of the mob. Note that Paul says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. He he doesn't say what the attorney general paraphrased him as saying. Obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. Paul merely says, be subject to the governing authorities. Meaning, place yourself under the governing authorities' rule. Paul never says that you have to obey an unjust law for the sake of public order. 
Paul himself would have never obeyed a, a command from the empire to offer incense to Caesar, and, and numerous Christians lost their lives in the first century for such offenses for a refusal to offer even a pinch of incense. But as a Roman subject, Paul would have accepted his punishment for disobeying all the while protesting the injustice and appealing to the lordship of Christ and the principles of divine justice. And the notion that this is a command for Christians to always obey the law, regardless of the content of the law, is an over-reading of Romans 13 and doesn't do justice to the breadth of what the Bible has to say. As Christian citizens of the United States, we are subject to the current administration, the Trump administration, as the legitimate head of the executive branch of our government, despite protests to the contrary that say to the contrary, he is my president. Jeff Sessions is my attorney general. And I would argue that these children separated from their parents are being subject to the governing authority. It's just the very manner of their subjugation reveals the immorality of the policy, which is why it provoked such an outcry that resulted in a change. So that's Paul's first point. The, 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 the desire for good government is a godly impulse. And Paul's second point is that the governing authorities have been put in their position by God, which for the Roman authorities would have been news to them. Instead of, fill, instead of filling those who rule or govern with a sense of impunity, this ought to fill them with terror. Paul even calls the governing authorities servants of God. And elsewhere, Paul and Jesus point out that God will give special attention to the conduct of those who are his servants. They will be called to give special account for how they have exercised their servanthood before his judgment seat. And so every government official should ask themselves, am I prepared to defend my actions before a holy and just God? And not imagine that Paul is giving them license to do whatever they want. So you've been put in place by God. You are God's servant. And as God's servant, you are accountable to him. And Paul's last point is this, and this is the one that it's most easy for us to miss because of the distance that we are in time and context from what he's writing about. His last point is this, don't be a revolutionary. And he means this in a quite literal sense. That's why after all this, he goes, listen, be subject to governing authorities. Uh, and then it's like, you know, seems like this general statement about government. And the punchline is pay your taxes, right? Because with all governments, what happens when you stop paying taxes? Things start getting really, really bad for you. You know, you have to pay your taxes. And in fact, if you were a, you know, province of, of the Roman Empire and taxes stopped coming in, that was a really fast way to get a bunch of legions marching towards you. Pay your taxes. And, and in radical circles of the Jewish community of the first century, there was this belief that paying taxes to Caesar was akin to idolatry. Right? It was apostasy. It was unfaithful. That's why the religious leaders, remember they tried to trap Jesus by asking him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Saying, oh, we're going to get him to reveal himself as either you know, a phony or, an, or a revolutionary, and so we'll be able to deal with him either way. And Jesus says, whose picture's on the coin? Caesar. Render Caesar. What's to Caesar? To God. What is God's? And when we're thinking about when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he wrote it after the expulsion of some of the Jewish community out of Rome 
under the emperor Claudius, and, and most historians believe this was due to a conflict within the early Christian community uh, between uh, Christians and, and, and non-Christians. Within, it was an inter, seen as an inter-Jewish dispute, and so there was an expulsion of Jews from Rome. And Paul's writing a letter to that community, so that's recently dealt with this turmoil in, in the heart of the empire. So Paul's writing it after that, and he's writing it before the great Jewish revolt in Palestine in 66 AD. And it, it was this revolution, this revolt that occurred that resulted in uh, the emperor Trajan sacking Jerusalem and burning the temple to the ground. This occurs less than a decade after Paul writes this letter that the Jewish revolt occurred. And so revolution was in the air in the broader Jewish world of which early Christianity was a part. And at the end, I mean, this was a cataclysm in AD 70 when the temple was burned to the ground. So, so real revolution was in the air. Now, as Americans, uh, our understanding of how we should relate, relate to the government is shaped in so many ways by the memory of 1776, right? And so we wish that Paul would have said, Res- resist, revolt, but there were no examples of successful revolts to Roman rule to which Paul could appeal. And there's very few, actually, in, in history for that matter. So for Paul to advocate such resistance to the church that he's writing to in the heart of the capital of the empire would have been tantamount to advocating suicide. So what Paul is offering is pretty straightforward and sound advice for those who must cope with the existing authority structure. And so if we want to know what, what Christians should do when the state turns against them, then we have to look beyond Romans 13 to other passages and engage in the kind of process of discernment I talked about earlier that Richard Hayes lifts up. So to sum it all up, public faith includes bringing our theology to bear on matters of public concern, but how we do this matters. Doing it poorly is proof texting merely looking for biblical justification for what we're already doing. But doing it well means being deep readers of Scripture, gathered in churches for prayer, discernment, study, and engaging in faithful action and reflection, listening deeply to the text and the Spirit before rashly speaking out on anything. And it means that we are always careful to avoid using Scripture as a weapon for self-justification, knowing that we stand not just under its authority, but God's judgment for how we use it. That's why we ought to pray along with King David the words of Psalm 19. That's the preacher's prayer, but it really ought to be the prayer of anyone who would deign to speak for God in public. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.